Hebrews chapter 1, page 1187. As you're turning there, let me ask you a question. What is the greatest sermon ever preached? I'm going to turn right around and say, don't answer that. It's a trick question. Many will answer that question by saying, well, the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever preached. Certainly, it's in the running. It was a sermon delivered by God himself. And anything given by God, because God is perfect, it cannot be surpassed. He is complete in his perfections. Not even God can outdo God as if he could get better than himself. He is perfect. But that means the sermon in the opening two chapters of Amos, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit, must also be a perfect sermon. And Peter on the day of Pentecost, delivered a spirit-inspired sermon. And it cannot be surpassed. You see the risk of pointing to one particular sermon in the scriptures as the greatest sermon ever preached creates for us a situation where saying how somehow that God on this occasion was superior to God on all the other occasions. That the Holy Spirit fell short in those other times and places, but he got it finally on the mountain. There is, oh, I forgot, uh, uh, Choose You This Day, the, the farewell sermon of Joshua, another great one from the scriptures. But the truth is the scriptures are full of many sermons inspired by God and thus perfect in their time and place and the purpose for which they were given. The book of Hebrews is one such sermon. The book of Hebrews is on that list of the all-time greatest sermons. Now, I know it's usually gathered in the, uh, under the, the heading of epistles. We talk about Hebrews as one of the epistles of the New Testament, and technically it is an epistle. It was sent, and it gives instruction. But it was not crafted as an epistle, nor was it ever intended to be read as a letter. It was written as a sermon, and it was to be read and understood as a sermon. This is one of the greatest sermons that has ever been preached. And we are going to look at it over the next several months very carefully. Now, what difference does it make that we understand Hebrews as a sermon rather than merely an epistle? Well, there are several differences it makes. One, as a sermon, as I already alluded to earlier, it leans heavily on the scriptures. It quotes the Old Testament on virtually every page. And in fact, if you do simply a word-for-word count, the word count, there's a higher percentage of Old Testament in Hebrews than in any other New Testament Romans has more actual quotes, but Romans is significantly longer than Hebrews. And so as a sermon, it rests on the word of God, as sermons ought to do. One of the things we considered in our Isaiah Sunday School class this morning is that the role of a prophet is to bring God's word, to deliver God's message. The office of prophet has ceased, and so as a preacher... We do not have, I do not have the freedom to bring some new word 
but I must rest on the revealed word of God. Now, this man is spirit-inspired, and he will explain and offer spirit-inspired understanding of the scriptures, and yet he still rests heavily on the word of God. I would encourage us to be reading through Hebrews, to follow the reading plan, to be looking at those Old Testament scriptures, to begin to wrestle with them, to see how he uses them so that we will understand him. What other difference does it make that he, this is a sermon and not uh, 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 strictly an epistle? Well, epistles, as instructionary letters can and often do take up any number of topics. Think about 1 Corinthians. Paul begins by uh, uh, talking about the, the danger of factions, and then he moves on to the issue of sexual immorality in the church, and then he talks about giving, and I know I'm skipping a few things in there. He talks about giving, then he talks about propriety in worship and conducting the Lord's table correctly, then he talks about the proper use of the spiritual gifts, and he, talks, and he closes out with a, a, a long uh, teaching on the resurrection. Well, that's a lot of different information in the book of 1 Corinthians. Sermons, as a general rule, have one main point. Even the sermons that we have been preaching at the end of the summer, if you look back to last week's sermon, while there were many uh, sub-points, the main point was the, the everlasting love of God. Before that, God will not despise the contrite and brokenhearted. Before that, God is holy. Sermons have one main point. And I share that with this, you to say this. If we go through Hebrews and do not drive home its main point, we have failed. We must understand Hebrews on its own terms. This preacher has a point he wants to make. Now, we can take the little chunks of Hebrews apart, and we can see in its opening sections phenomenal, uh, exalt, uh, just exalted Christology, and think it's all about that. We can look at the portion on the comparison of the covenants and think it's all about theology. We can get into the, the beautiful talk in, in 11 and 12 about the life of faith and the reward in the city which has its foundations in God and get caught up in soteriology and eschatology. But those are his subpoints. Our author, our preacher, is going to dry, use those to drive us to one main point. So what is that main point? Well, very quickly, let me share with you right now because I want it to guide all the rest of the time we spend in the book of Hebrews. And so in Hebrews 2.1, we have a warning not to drift away. In Hebrews 4.11, we are told to strive to enter the rest which God offers. In 4.14, we are told to hold fast our confession. In 6, 1 through 6, we are told not to leave the faith, because if we do, there is no hope, for Christ cannot be sacrificed a second time. In chapter 10, we are told again to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Also in chapter 10, we're told to stir one another to go to church, to not neglect gathering together. In 12.1, we are famously told to run the race with endurance, to run with endurance the race set before us. 
1225, we are warned not to refuse the one who is speaking to us. Over And, and those are the ones I, I could succinctly summarize. There are other places where this theme is there. Over and over and over and over and over again, the preacher of Hebrews is going to admonish us, encourage us, warn us not to stray from the Christian faith. When he brings Christology to bear, and it will be beautiful Christology, it will be so that we will love Christ more and cling to him and not stray from the faith. When he talks about the covenants and the hope we have in them, it will be so that we cling to the Christian faith. When he talks about the city of God, whose foundations cannot be shaken, it will be so that we cling to the faith. The point of Hebrews is that we would hold fast our confession that we would not stray from the Christian religion. Now, the audience to whom it was originally written were Jews who had accepted Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. Hebrews is the title of the book. And some of them were struggling and were tempted to go back to Judaism because of their families, because of the culture in which they were immersed, because of the traditions with which they had grown up. They were being drawn back to Judaism. And our preacher, our author, is uh, striving to convince them not to do that, to stay in Christianity. Now, I don't imagine that for any of us here today, the risk of falling into Judaism is particularly real. And yet the book is still incredibly important to us. The message of this sermon resonates. For every day, the world, our flesh, and the devil say, turn away from Christ. Turn away from Christianity. Leave the church behind. It is an archaic institution. It has nothing worthwhile to say to you today. It was built for a time of mythology and superstition. And we have science, says the guy with a master's degree in chemistry. We are tempted to walk away just as they were. And so the admonition to hold fast our confession is an enduring admonition. But it is also a challenging one. Here we are, Presbyterians, conservative Presbyterians, confessional Presbyterians. We're Calvinists. And we know you cannot lose your salvation. So why is there a whole book warning us against it? And even if you're not convinced that I'm right about that theme of the book of Hebrews, you have to at least deal with this. Twice, twice in chapter 4 and chapter uh, 10, it says, hold fast your confession. Why would there be a warning about that when you can't lose your salvation? 
I'm not going to answer that. Not now. It is a tremendous mistake to allow our, th our systematic theology to dull the word of God. It is a two-edged sword, sharp for the penetrating onto bone and marrow, separating soul and spirit. It must cut us. It must warn us. It must affect us. And so we are going to let Hebrews be an admonition to hold our confession. The author does this by a series of comparisons, and he jumps right in in chapter 1 to one such comparison. He's going to compare the Christian religion to something about Judaism, and then on the basis of that comparison, tell us that we ought to stick with Christianity. And we're going to see how that works. So let's begin in Hebrews 1.1, and we will read through 2.4. And as you're going to see, despite that break of the chapter in there, it is a continuous section. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making pure purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Psalm 2.7 Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. 2 Samuel 7.14 And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Deuteronomy 32.43 Or, or the, uh, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, Psalm 104.4. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness before your companions. We read that as our call to worship. Verse 10, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. From Psalm 102. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, notice how this connects. Therefore, on account of all of this, because of everything I have just preached to you, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape 
if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Spirit of God, reveal the Son to us through this passage. Let us hear the message intended by this preacher. And if this preacher today gets in the way, let anything wrong that I have said be quickly forgotten so that you and your word are what we know, what we hear today. And let us extol Christ because of who he is, his superiority over the angels. And let us cling fast to the confession of hope you have given us without wavering. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our preacher in the book of Hebrews loves comparisons. It is his technique of choice. It is the style that he is going to use over and over and over again. Here, he compares the son to angels, later to Melchizedek, later to the high priest. After that, he's going to compare the old covenant to the new covenant. He's going to build a whole series of comparisons. And so we need to understand this teaching technique. We are not going to grasp Hebrews if we don't grasp this. So very quickly, let's take a little uh, 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 illustration of how this teaching technique works. Now imagine that I wish to extol to you a particular vehicle, a particular mode of transportation. One of the ways I might do this, the, the, the way our author of Hebrews might go about this, would be to describe to you a highly regarded vehicle with which you are familiar, and then talk about how the other vehicle exceeds it in every way. So, for example, I could point out the Toyota Prius, renowned for its fuel economy, getting nearly 60 miles to every gallon of gasoline. And then I could point out that in three years, in three seasons on the television, did you ever see the Starship Enterprise pull over to fuel up? It is infinitely superior to the Prius. And what about stealth? Oh, sure, if you keep the Prius under 10 miles an hour in the church parking lot, your enemies will never hear you coming. But the Enterprise... It had a cloaking device. It could be completely hidden. Nobody would ever see it. It is superior to the Prius. And what about Toyota's famous dependability? Okay, I guess Scotty did have to tweak the warp drive in almost every episode. But you get what I'm saying here. The Starship Enterprise is superior to a Toyota Prius. In the same way, our author is going to set forth something you know, something you regard highly, something his original audience regarded highly and knew, and then compare some aspect of the Christian religion and show how it was superior. 
We, we still do this, by the way. We have the expression king of kings. Whatever honor or glory or privilege of position you might assign to a king, assign that even more so to Jesus. Jesus is kinglier than any king you can imagine. Not just that, the whole point is that he is the kingliest of all kings. And that sort of comparison inspired this morning's sermon title, Angel of Angels. Whatever characteristics and attributes are attributed to angels, the Son exceeds them in every way. God the Son, the incarnate one, the God-man, the baby born of the virgin in Bethlehem, he possesses to the ultimate degree any of the praiseworthy attributes of angels. If Gabriel is angelic, if Michael the archangel is angelic or, or more angelic, then God the Son is the angelicest of them all. He is the supreme one in this sense. He is angel of angels. Now, I haven't been out to the stores in the last couple of weeks, but I imagine that Christmas decor is already showing up on the shelves. If not, it'll be there any day. And at Christmas, angels are popular. Americans do not necessarily embrace any other reality of the unseen world, but we love ourselves some angels. They'll be on the tops of our trees. They'll be on our uh, greeting cards. They're going to be on the lamppost downtown. Angels are going to be everywhere. They're even on the roof next to Santa. I never got that one. I'm not sure. Are they helping him down the chimney? I don't know. We love our angels. The Christ, well, he's okay if he stays a baby in the, the manger. But our angels, we're on board with them. Well, whatever our fascination today with angels... The first century Jews had even higher regard for angels. Those to whom this letter was written, these Hebrew Christians, they held angels in the highest regard. We see that, and that's why that's here. That's exactly why our, our, our preacher kicks off with this comparison. You and I might not have picked angels as the first thing to compare the sun to, but this is where he begins because of the surpassing importance of angels to his audience. And so our author points to the sun and says he vastly exceeds angels. Let's take a look at how he goes through this. To whatever degree the enterprise is superior to a Prius, it's even more true that the sun is superior to angels. Look at verses 5 and 6. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. You see, right out of the gate, the son exceeds angels by virtue of his relationship with the father. Now, we might think to ourselves that, hey, angels, you know, they are these glorious beings. Um, we see in the book of Isaiah in chapter 6 how they attend to the throne room of God. We look at the book of Revelation, and we see angels all around the throne of God. And we might look at angels and go, wow, they're closer to God than any other being. And our author says, no, 
The Son is closer to the Father. The Son is nearer the Father. The Son has a better relationship with the Father. It doesn't matter how close the angels are in physical proximity. The Son has the better relationship to the Father. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Again, exaltation by comparison. His name that he inherited surpasses their names. Now, I couldn't really think of a good local Easton illustration, so I'm going to go dive back into my years ago, back in Detroit, but I think you'll be able to follow this along. In Metro Detroit, in certain cultural and societal settings, every once in a while you run into, you're introduced to somebody whose name is Mrs. Ford. Mr. Dodge. And in hushed tones, you turn to other people and go, is she one of those Fords? Is he one of those Dodges? And the answer often is yes. And by the way, the founders of GM was not named Mr. Motors. It was the Durant family, but I didn't think you'd know that one here, so I didn't go with the Durants. There are still Fords in Metro Detroit. They are local royalty. They have this name that is just superior in Detroit. And how do they come to have that name? By virtue of being in the family. Because they are one of them. Why am I a Shaw? Because I'm a Shaw. That's who I am. By virtue of my nature, my essence, my being, I'm rightly called a Shaw. And his point here, whether or not there is a divine surname, that misses the point. His point here is that the Son gets the name of God because he is God. That's who he is, and no angel can make that claim. No angel can ascend to that position. He is superior to the angels. This was a theme already planted way back in verse 2. If you look at verse 2, he has been appointed the heir of all things. You and I tend to think of heirs as being those who are waiting around for somebody to die. But that's not how it worked in the ancient world. Back then, to be an heir was to be one who had the right of, the privilege of, the authority of the father. If you were an heir to the estate, then you had a right to to give orders on the estate, to dispose of and use its assets and resources. You had all the privileges that the owner of the estate had. You were, for all intents and purposes, co-equal with the estate owner if you were an heir. And we're told the son is an heir, and no angel is. And he says, so you all like angels a whole lot, but look how the son exceeds them. Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn in the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Think about this. 
He's saying not only is the son a part of the family, not only does the son get the name of God, not only is the son heir to God and co-equal with God, but to give you some sense of how much more exalted he is than the angels, the angels worship him. They bow down to him. You think highly of angels, they think highly of the son. And we have, in essence, the transitive property here. Whatever you regard of angels, they regard of the son, and therefore you ought to think that way about the son. Angels worship the son. In the verse 7 of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now that's not nothing. This is not a lowering of angels. Angels are not something to be trifled with. He makes his angels winds. They are these invisible forces of the created world that move things around and accomplish God's purposes. That's legit. They are a flame of fire. How about this Christmas, you tear down the pretty little girly angel at the top of the tree and put a seraphim, a burning one, a flame of fire. Don't do that on a real tree because it'll burn your house down. But you get the idea. If we're going to exalt the, 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 the creatures of God, the creations of God, and there's nothing wrong with that, it's okay to, to look at God's creations and, and, be mar- and marvel at them and glorify God through that. But let's at least do it biblically. These angels are not round-faced little babies. They're not winged, passive, pretty, feminine creatures. They are flaming ministers of God. So he's not trying to drag angels down. Rather, he's saying the angels are all that you imagine them to be, but the sun is more. The sun is greater. And so he goes on in verse 8, but, the, but of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. What's the Greek word behind that? Christ. Christos. Anointed one. What's the Hebrew word behind that? Messiah. And so we begin to see how he's pulling this together. He has anointed you. Why? Because you loved righteousness. You hated wickedness. Now remember, this is one complete sermon. So right here, right now, in the little bit that we've looked at it today, he doesn't yet connect this dot for us, so I will have to kind of give a preview of what's coming. He will eventually get around to saying, hey, Jesus never sinned. He was like us in every way, but without sin. He will point out to us that God the Son learned obedience through suffering, that he did what is required here, that he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And therefore, God anointed him. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. Because he's the one who lived a sinless life. He's the one 
that's worthy to take as his bride, the people of God, the church. And so we see our, our author say, hey, angels are amazing. They're ministering spirits. They're, they're flaming fires. They are exalted beings. But you've got to understand that the sun is even beyond them. Now, we've got to begin to also realize now what's going on in all of this is that uh, uh, the, this is not a question of um, angelness in the way that we might be thinking of it. This is not a question of God the Son having a brighter halo or a bigger pair of wings or deserving to be on the top of your tree rather than the angel you put up last year. So what is going on? If God the Son exceeds the angels, in what way does he exceed the angels? Well, he exceeds, and by the way, I've skipped over, and I apologize, I skipped over 10, 11, and 12, and I really shouldn't have. Let's go back for just a moment to 10, 11, and 12. In, in 10, 11, and 12, he, he, our author points out that the superiority of the Son is not a function of nepotism. It's not that, okay, he's the Son, God the Father, he's the Son, you know, you know, God's the boss. If he wants to make him, you know, all, to be all that, I guess we just have to go along. No, our author says he didn't merely inherit his position, but he earned it. Look at how in 10, 11, and 12. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. He says the Son is superior not only because he's the Son, but because of what he's done. The angels are at best ministering spirits. He's the creator, the maker, the one who made those angels. And so we see him exalted for who he is in the family of God, being the heir, being the one who inherited the divine name. We see him exalted because he is the creator, the powerful one. And now we have to understand him as exalted in his angelic function. And this is where it can get a little messy for us. You see, we have these notions of angel. It means something. That word means something to us when we hear it. It conjures up certain images. But we've got to reset our thinking to what a first century, century Jewish Christian would have thought. And here's one of the challenges. Though the New Testament is written in Greek, most of the thinking behind it is Hebrew. The writers and the audience were overwhelmingly Jews, Hebrews. And so what we find frequently in the New Testament is that the writers will co-opt Greek words to convey Hebraic ideas. So when we hear angel, we need to realize how the, the original audience would have heard that. They would have in their head substituted the, the Hebrew idea of Moloch, messenger, one who brings the word of God. 
They would have seen those on Jacob's ladder ascending and descending, carrying the word of God to man and the prayers of man up to God. They would have seen and imagined the angel in our Old Testament reading who brought the word of God to the people of Israel in the book of Judges. They would have understood angel as the, the, the one who brought God's word to Zechariah in chapter 3. And even in our passage in Hebrews 2, what is there in verse 2, I think, in chapter 2? He even talks about how the angels brought the word of God to Moses. The law was given, I don't think Moses is named specifically, but the context makes clear he's talking about the Mosaic law. That angels deliver this. Angels are messengers. So what's his point? Now, if we had only that, if we were speculating, if we were sitting there going, well, we think those first century readers would have read the word angel and they would have heard the word messenger, that might be a little thin. But we don't have just that to go on. Now look at the beginning and the end of our text. What, what, what uh, 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 scholars would call an inclusio. We have bookends. Go back to the opening portion of our text. Verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. There it is. There's the concept of messenger. There's the notion of angelness. Right there. He's now, God is now speaking to us differently. And I don't have time to fully develop this, by the way. We will talk about this in two weeks in our Isaiah class, so hey, come to Isaiah. I don't have time to fully develop this. But the biblical view of human history breaks into three parts. There are the latter days before Christ. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the former days. There are the former days before Christ. There are the latter or last days after Christ. In other words... If you ask the question, are we in the last days, the answer is yes. And again, I, I can't fully develop that and defend that right now. And then there is the age to come, when the earth shall be made new and we shall live with God and God with us. That's it. Human history, biblically speaking, falls into those three categories. The former days, the latter or last days, and the age to come. And we live in those latter or last days, even according to our author here. How does he say it? In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And part of what defines this is the revelation of God the Son. That revealing, that coming of God, that word of God to man is definitive, it's final, it's superior. There's not going to be any other revelation. And notice in verse 3, he didn't just say that the God the Son revealed God through words, but notice he does throw through his character and his being. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. God is revealed in Christ Jesus the Son with precision with accuracy, with exactness, with clarity, with certitude. 
in Jesus of Nazareth, we have everything God wants us to know about himself. Now, that doesn't mean we have everything there is to know about God. He's infinite. We are finite. We will never know everything there is to know about God. But we have in Jesus Christ everything God wanted us to know. Now, I said this was an inclusio, a bookends, an open and a closing. So now jump down to the bottom. Go to chapter 1, verse 14, and then we'll move into chapter 2. Are they, that is angels, not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now, what is it that's needed for our salvation? It's special revelation. It's the Word of God. It's the Bible. That's what we need for salvation. For in nature, we have knowledge of God. Every culture exalts something as supreme. And in nature, we have a clear knowledge of our failings with regard to that supreme. Look at our own culture. If you don't rightly regard the environment, you have sinned a great sin. And you must pay the price of expulsion from the in-group. If you don't rightly uphold the, the things that our culture says should be upheld, the tolerances, the views on these things, you must pay the price of being expelled from the culture. Even in our culture that claims to be atheistic and humanistic, there is a, a, a transcendent sense that something out there bigger than ourselves that we must answer to. We know there is a God and we know that we are answerable to him and we know that we fall short of him all through the natural world and our consciences. But this says they are sent for the sake of salvation. And that requires special revelation. In nature alone, we don't know that Jesus died for us. In nature alone, we don't know that he kept the law of God perfectly. In nature alone, we do not know that he was raised from the dead for our justification. And he says, that's what angels bring, is that message. And he goes on now, what is he, uh, 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 he talks about, and look at 2.2, two, he actually talks about how the, uh, the, the prophets in the past, those messages came and were declared by angels. And so we see this, this key role of the angel being the messenger, and we see that God the Son is the ultimate or the final, the unsurpassed messenger. He is the angel of angels. So what? What does that mean for us? And this is where we jump into 2. Therefore... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. We must know what Jesus communicated, what he did, who he was, what he was all about. We must know what verse 4 said. That after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Because the Son has been revealed... 
we are accountable for what he revealed. And if we stray from the Christian religion, if we walk away from the faith of, in Jesus Christ, we will be accountable for the knowledge we had. And why do we have to pay so close attention? Look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, part B. Lest we drift away. Lest we drift away. You know, many people, many Christians, many churches have asked, and I think this is a reasonable question to ask as you're growing in the faith, as you're wrestling with these things. It's appropriate to ask. Hey, throughout so much of human history, there were prophets. God revealed himself in and through men and women and shared his word to them. Why doesn't that continue in the church today? I don't think it's wrong to ponder that and to ask that question. But I think we have to come to grips with what is being said here in Hebrews chapter 1. The reason it's wrong to today continue to imagine that God reveals new things to people that he is continuing to speak through prophets. The reason that's wrong is because it implies that the son was an inadequate messenger. That he didn't bring the fullness of what needed to be brought. To imagine that God says to me, a preacher today, oh, by the way, I forgot to have Jesus tell you guys this, so I'm going to give you a new revelation and you need to share it with everybody. Write a book, get on TV, tell everybody about the new revelation I've given you. That is an insult to God the Son. We must not get sucked in by those who would claim to have access to new revelations from God, new words from Him, as if the Son was not sufficient. These are the last days. There will not be another period of revelation until he comes on the clouds to be seen by all and usher in the age to come. And by the way, you and I need to be careful. I, as a pastor, need to be careful. We slip into this Pastors will say things like, the Holy Spirit called me into the ministry. And there is a sense in which that's true, but we need to be careful of what we mean by that. When you say, God told me to take that job, you need to be careful of what you mean by that. If what you mean is that God put this job in front of me, and it allowed me to better fulfill the scriptural mandates. I could better provide for my family. I could better be generous with others. I could give better to my church. I could testif testify to God's glory more faithfully through this job. If what you mean is that the scriptures revealed to me why this job is a better job, then that's perfectly wonderful. But too often what we really mean is... I had a sense inside me that I wanted this job. And I'm going to justify taking it by saying that God told me to take it. He has spoken through his son. 
the final and definitive word from God. The one who is the exact representation of his nature. There is no longer any new revelation coming forth. He is the angel of angels. He is the ultimate messenger. He is the one who brings God's word in the final and definitive way. Now, in verse 2, he gives us that warning about, sorry, verse 1, it gives us that warning about uh, not falling away. And what is the risk? Look at verse 3. If we fall away, how shall we escape? And of course, this is a rhetorical question. You can't. There is no escaping this. If you leave the Christian faith, if you get pulled away by some other word, if you decide that science is the definitive word on what is happening around us, if you decide that your friends are more important to you, your family is the place where truth is really revealed, then you are in grave, literally grave, danger. How shall we escape? You shan't. You can't. You will not. So at this point, he said, listen, God the Son is superior to the angels. God the Son is the messenger of messengers. He's the exact representation of God. He's the perfect revelation to us. Now, one of us might say, and one of the original audience might have asked, okay, I buy in that the Son of God is the superior revelation from God, the angel of angels, but that doesn't mean it's Jesus of Nazareth. Right? You could buy all of the argument to this point and go, but that isn't Jesus. And that's what many of those Jews would have been doing. Look how he closes out there in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. It was de uh, declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. He's saying, look, just as God authenticated Moses and Joshua through miracles... Just as God authenticated Elijah and Elisha through miracles, so he authenticated Jesus of Nazareth and the apostles through signs and wonders, through miracles. He is bringing this, again, we're, we're only stopping at a portion of his sermon, but he's beginning to unfold and go, yes, God the Son is Jesus. You all were alive, or many of you were alive back when he was uh, walking the earth. Uh, this would have been written somewhere around 65 A.D., so there would have been any number of people who 30 years earlier, 35 years earlier, might have been eyewitnesses to Jesus. And he's saying, you guys know how he was attested by God. You know that he's the one that brought the word of God. You know that he's the revelation of God to us. And notice how he says in here, you know, and it was attested to us by those who heard. He includes some who were not eyewitnesses. And he says it's a valid position to take because we've got the testimony of so many. That's you and me. 
We're not firsthand witnesses to the miracles of Jesus. We're not eyewitnesses to the Sermon on the Mount. We didn't see the resurrection with our own eyes. And the world will say to us, it's an unreasonable position. You should not hold to the Christian faith. There's, there's just no valid reason for it. And he's pointing out, yes, there is. For we hold to all sorts of things based on the testimony of many witnesses. I've never seen the Grand Canyon. I'm pretty sure it's there. And you would call me a moron if I denied its existence. Because you go, Scott, whether or not you've seen it, hundreds and thousands of others have, and they've told you it was there. I don't actually know that the British Isles exist from any first-hand experience. I've never seen an atom, though I am a chemist, or was. You get the point. If there are reliable witnesses, it is perfectly justified. It is totally warranted. It is the right and logical and reasonable conclusion to believe the witnesses. And he says, that's how we came to faith. The testimony of so many who saw what God attested in Jesus. And so we read the Gospels. You ever wonder why there are four Gospels? I think this may be one of the main reasons right here. So that that Jewish principle, that Old Testament principle of any matter should be settled by two or three witnesses, God threw in a bonus witness. All we needed was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and God said, and I'm giving you John also. Here are four witnesses testifying to what happened. And what does Paul do in Corinthians? And oh, by the way, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of others. And oh, by the way, there were at least 500 who saw him raised from the dead. And our author of Hebrews is going, you know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. You know he was attested by miracles and by signs and wonders. And I'm telling you, the Son is the superior revelation from God, the superior messenger, the final word. This is who God is. This is what you must believe about him. This is who you must listen to. How did the Father say it on the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my Son. Listen to him. That's the word of the book of Hebrews to us in chapter 1. He is the surpassing angel. The greatest messenger who ever came. Let's pray. Lord, we are tempted to be pulled away from this truth in so many ways. We are uh, dragged down by doubt. We are cajoled and, 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 and uh, uh, challenged by, by people around us to be like them, to, to get on board with this, the modern understanding of things and to abandon the archaic sense of Christianity. Help us to hear the author of Hebrews helps to hear the message of this sermon that Jesus is the surpassing word of God to man. 
that he is the only one in whom we will ever know you fully. That we must cling to him even in the midst of our doubts. As we continue through the book of Hebrews in the weeks and months to come, let us constantly be drawn back to this message of the superiority of Christ and our need to cling to him. We pray this in his name. Amen.